Remain standing for our scripture reading and turn to Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 6, for our Old Testament reading. And then our New Testament reading and text for the sermon is found in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. So first of all, Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone to the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai. They encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then from Titus chapter 3 verses 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word, your Word read, your Word heard. We pray that you would bless it to your people, to their hearts and to their lives. And now, Lord, grant strength and the unction of your Holy Spirit to your servant to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As those who have been here through this short series, and it's a short series because it's a short book in the Bible, this three short chapters uh, in Paul's letter to the Titus. My, my reason for, for picking this particular letter is, I believe it is especially apt to the time 
in which we live, especially now, as a mission work. Our search committee has been working now for a long time, a number of months. We've had some times of great hope and anticipation that this might be the man, um, only to be disappointed, but that disappointment is short-lived because we know the Lord in those cases, had other things in, in mind for the man that we thought might be our man. And at the same time, he has the man for us here. But I wanted to focus on Titus, not only to prepare us for the coming of our Titus. And you'll recall, I told you in the very beginning that if everybody we read about in the New Testament, Titus ministry most resembles what a church planter's ministry looks like in an Orthodox Presbyterian church mission. That's why when we're praying for our church planter, we're calling him Titus until the Lord tells us what his name is. But I want you to think not only in terms of the preparation of his coming, but beyond. Titus had a ministry, and Titus' ministry was to set in order the things that remained that were yet undone, in particular the appointing of elders in the church. And what we need to realize is this. We need to think not in terms of, okay, let's pray for our Titus to come. Okay, our church planter is here. Now we can rest. Time to stop praying. No, no, it's time to continue to pray that that the Lord would bless his work, that of the provisional session, unto the raising up from among you men who would serve as elders in a session of this church and this church coming into its own maturity as a congregation. And so... This is the foundation, not just for the coming of Titus, but beyond that um, in the life of this particular uh, congregation. Also, last time we, we saw that we are to live in light of the age to come and the power of the age to come. And as we come to chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, we see Titus telling, or, or Paul telling Titus to instruct the people in, in how it is that we're to live before the world. And then next time, Lord willing, when I'm back, we will finish the book of Titus and say, how are we supposed to live in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ? So first of all, how is it that we as Christians and as a church are to live before the world? And that's what we have in the text that we have before us this morning. Uh, The reason why I picked as our Old Testament reading that passage from Exodus 19 is to see that God in the Old Covenant called Israel to be a holy nation. She was to be a light on the hill. She was to have an evangelistic ministry to shine the light of the truth to the nations that were around her. Sadly, when you read that history, Israel failed in that. Jesus, of course, as the true Israel, did not fail in his ministry. And now Jesus is calling us to live as light among those in the world around us. But look at where he begins this. He begins it by talking about the civil magistrate, those that are in authority over us. Remind them, Paul tells Titus, remind them, that is, the people in the churches on the island of Crete, to be to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. He begins with the civil magistrate. I don't know of anything that's more important right now 
than for us to take a step back and to ask ourselves the question, what does the Bible say about our relationship as Christians and the relationship of the church? There's all kinds of confusion that's out there. In our reading of the law, we began with the second table of the law. We began with commandment number five. What is commandment number five? Children, obey your parents. The larger catechism, when it expounds that, says this isn't only talking about children and parents. It's talking about all inferiors and superiors in whatever relationship they're in in life. And one of those chief ones is the relationship between the civil magistrate and the citizens that the civil magistrate serves. The commandment to obey your parents comes to all of us to obey all lawful authorities that God has placed over us. And we see that right here in this text. Now, I don't know a lot of details about what the civil magistrates were like on the island of Crete. But I do know more about the civil magistrate at Rome. And what we have in Rome chapter 13, and we're going to turn there now, spend a little bit of time in Romans chapter 13. We have Paul taking the very same theme we see in Titus chapter 3, but expounding upon it in Romans chapter 13. And we know that in Rome, Caesar is the chief magistrate. He was not a godly man. It's easy to recognize that. He was a wicked man that would soon be persecuting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, in Romans 13, these are the words that we hear that Paul says to the Romans who live in Rome. They live in Rome where Caesar lives and reigns. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. That is, that word that's translated servant is actually angelos. It's also translated angel. 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 He is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only avoid God's wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God. There's that word. Actually, that's the word angelos right there. Ministers of God. Angels of God. Attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. We read these words and we wonder, does Paul have any idea what it's like to live in the United States under the government that we have right now? No, he didn't, but he knew exactly what it was like to live under under Caesar in Rome. Here's something that you need to recognize about the civil authority. 
But it says you are the, these are the angels of God. These are the ministers of God. Paul means that. There's a doctrine that we talk about that's called the doctrine of common grace. It's not saving grace. But it's the grace of God that's extended to all where God restrains evil and wickedness to keep men from being as wicked as they would be otherwise. And God has established certain institutions as common grace institutions to that end. And the primary institution that he has established to restrain evil is that of the civil magistrate. It's that of the government. And we need to recognize that God has established this. Why? It's a fallen world. And what is the purpose of the civil magistrate? Well, it's clear in the text what the purpose of the civil magistrate is. Its purpose is to protect the innocent and punish the wicked. And there's all kinds of questions that we can ask that needed to be answered in terms of, well, what about when the government overreaches? Those are legitimate questions to ask. It's God-given task. Our civil magistrates sometimes tyrannical. They are. And, and those are questions that have to be asked and things that have to be answered. And yet what we need to recognize is government is established by God. To resist it is to resist what God has established. That doesn't mean in a time of tyranny that there's no resistance. No, I'm not talking about that at all. But to recognize the institution of government is God has established it and its purposes. It is to restrain evil. We live in a day now where there is little respect for government. And it doesn't matter what side of the spectrum you're on. If you're a conservative, really, really, really conservative, then there's deep concern oftentimes about government overreach, especially as we went through this pandemic. On the other hand, if you're on the extreme left, there's oftentimes deep concern about the motives in the heart of those civil magistrates that we have to deal with on the street day after day. That is the police officers. So there's little respect shown for the civil magistrate, even on both ends of the spectrum. People forget that God has established this institution. And even when you must protest, or even when you must resist, it must be done in humility. It must be done recognizing that God has established the institution for a purpose. There are some denominations that in their general assemblies or synods or different councils that they meet in, you know, they, they have a book this thick. Why? Because they have all of these things that the assembly wants to say to the civil magistrate on every issue that you can imagine. When I came into the OPC, one of the things I realized is the general assemblies, uh, <coughs> uh, the, the things that we're talking about, it's, it's about this thick compared to about this thick. I can remember two times in, in my 25, almost 30 years of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church that the OPC at the General Assembly level spoke to the civil magistrate. And then by way of humble petition, which is what the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches. Now, there, there are times when the church may need to stand up and speak, but it's by humble petition. Why? Because God has instituted the civil magistrate.
And we need to recognize that. And it has its purpose and its purpose in our life. And this is what Paul is saying here. And this is Caesar in Rome. This is not a Christian government. There's some people that say, yes, you submit to the government as long as the government says Jesus. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who hold that view. No, that's not what Paul's talking about here. This government, this civil magistrate, Caesar did not bow the knee to Jesus, but rather took up a sword against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet God still says, this is the minister of God. God has established it. And and, and typically in our lives, it functions that way. Typically, you're not put in jail when you do that which is good, when you keep the law. Typically, you are arrested or you punished when you break the law. And the laws typically are good <laughs> to protect the innocent and that evildoers be punished. Now, are there unjust laws? Of course there are unjust laws. Are we to oppose them? Sometimes we must disobey them. But how do you disobey when you disobey? It's still respecting the institution itself. This is what Paul is teaching here in Romans chapter 13. It's what he's teaching in Titus 3. It's important that we recognize these things in the day in which we live today. I'm not going to make any pronouncements about this particular side of the issue or that particular side of the issue. I'm going to call on all to be respectful to the lawful authority that God has placed, even when we must say no or even if we must disobey. You remember Peter and Paul, uh, Peter and John were told, don't speak anymore in Jesus' name by the council, by the Sanhedrin. And they disobeyed that. Now, that wasn't a civil authority. It was an ecclesiastical authority. But it's an ecclesiastical authority that had some civil powers. And it was set up and established in that day. They could not crucify. That's why they had to go to Pilate to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. But they did have some civil authority as well. What did Peter and John say? Are we to obey man or are we to obey God? Because God told them to speak in this name. But it's by way of humble petition that you do this. If you must disobey, then what do you do? You take the consequences for it. Humbly before God. We need to be very careful about these things. When the fifth commandment was given, God didn't simply have in mind parents and children. He had in mind any of us that find ourselves in a role as an inferior to a lawful superior. And that includes the civil magistrate. And there's sometimes so much rancor that's out there. There's almost no respect, especially if your party's not in power. There's almost no respect, even for the office itself. And when that happens, we have fallen into sin. Can the civil magistrate err? Yes. And greatly, can it be tyrannical? Yes. And there are times in history where we see that that's the case. But by and large, God established this institution to protect us. They're ministers of God. I remember years ago, one of the 
men that was a member of a con- the congregation I served in, Shell Howie's brother, who's a police officer. And there was... Um, was murdered. It's domestic abuse. He shows up at the house. He unwisely didn't wait for backup. The guy opened the door and shot him and killed him. And, and I was asked to preach his funeral. And I mean, the place was packed. In, in fact, in front of me, you had the family on the side. In front of me, in the, in the, in the funeral home, in the of the funeral home. It was only uniformed officers from all over the state, every county in the state of Tennessee. There were representatives that were there. Other people were inside rooms and they were broadcasting it outside. And one of the things that I did in that, as I said, I've got a message for you this morning. One is has temporal consequences. The other one has eternal consequences. This is what has temporal consequences. I want every officer that's here to stand. And they all stood up. And I read Romans 13. I said, whether you believe it or not, whether you understand it or not, God says you're an angel of God to protect the innocent and to punish evildoers. And when you're faithful to your task... I want to say on behalf of the people of God, we thank you for your service. You may be seated. And now a message of eternal consequence and preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was on the news that night. Not the part about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, (laughs) but the temporal part was what was on the news and what was reported and in, 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 in the newspaper, we have to recognize God established the state for a purpose, and that purpose is for our good and to restrain evil. Even though I'm not saying that there aren't complex circumstances and situations that arise where Christians and churches have to make sometimes hard and difficult decisions. But keep in mind, the state is instituted by God man by God. So first of all, he speaks of submission to rulers and authorities. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And then to speak evil of no one. Remember, the context here is our living before the world. To speak evil of no one. Not to speak evil of no one within the church, but to speak evil of no one Period. We need to guard our language. How easy is it for us to demonize those that are outside the church of Jesus Christ? And to look upon them with scorn, with absolute scorn. How dare we? As the text will go on to teach us. Speak evil to no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. This is talking about within the world. Avoid quarreling. That is to be peaceable as much as you can be peaceable. And you might say, but my neighbor won't be peaceable with me. And sometimes neighbors won't. <laughs> no, you are to be peaceable with them. You are to avoid quarreling with them. How tempting it is for us to draw a line and to stand behind it in a combative way with our unbelieving neighbor and not realize that while we may be right and just, we're destroying the witness of the gospel. 
Avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Christians need to be polite and courteous. This is what God is calling us to do as we live before the world. Why? Look at what he goes on to say. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Why is it that we can't look down in disdain upon unbelievers when we know that they are wicked before God because apart from God's grace, you're just like them. That's why. God saved you out of it. And you can't even plead, especially us Calvinists can't even plead, well, at least I believed. At least I had sense enough to say yes to Jesus. No, you didn't. God the Holy Spirit overcame your resistance. God the Holy Spirit effectually called you and regenerated you. God the Holy Spirit gave you a heart to believe. It is by grace that you are saved, as Paul will go on to say in the text. Now, apart from the grace of God, you're no different. There is no room for pride or arrogance in the Christian. Especially the one who holds to the Reformed faith and to a high doctrine of total depravity and a high doctrine of God's grace and mercy. Do you see? How can we not but be humble? The grace of God, we're no different. We're no different. But thanks be to God for His grace and mercy. And now we model that how in humility and in gentleness and in kindness towards other, others. Look at what he says, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. When the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared, literally here, appeared to man, he saved us. We can sum up how it is that we are to live with our neighbors in the world who are unbelievers. And that is to be kind. And why should we be kind? Because that's who God is. Let's take this doctrine of, of common grace and expand on a little One way that we see common grace functioning is God restraining wickedness. And he uses the state to do that. He uses the civil magistrate as an institution to keep man from being as wicked as he would be otherwise. For the sake of the preservation of a holy seed for himself and for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's another way in which we see common grace. And this is denied in some reform circles. And that is his love and his kindness towards the wicked and towards the reprobate. There are those who would say that God's disposition towards the wicked is only wrath, always. Never kindness. This is not what the Bible teaches. We're to be kind, why? Because God is kind and God was kind to us. But the way he puts it here, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior 
appeared to man. And, and, and it's not just appeared, I mean, it's, it's appeared to man. It's not appeared to us. It's not appeared to the elect of God. It's when the goodness and the kindness of God appeared to man. And, and let the text say what the text is saying. Let the Word of God say what the Word of God is saying. Oftentimes, we have our theological constructs, our ways in which we understand how the Word of God is to be understood in a systematic fashion. Oftentimes, our theological constructs are very neat, tight boxes that not all the passages of Scripture fit into. And you need to let the text say what the text is saying. The goodness and kindness of God appeared to man. That is to mankind. Yes, salvifically, it comes to us, the elect of God. Another passage that comes to mind is a very familiar one, John 3.16. Anybody know that verse? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We can say it frontwards and backwards, can we not? In the King James Version, of course. Because that's why we memorized it. John 3.16. One time, years ago, stirred up all kind of controversy within my family. Because I preached it to my family. And they came from different traditions. And I said in that sermon, there are two errors in how to interpret the word world in this text. One is a Calvinist error and one is an Arminian error. The Calvinist error is... For God so loved the elect that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We know that's what God means by world. He means the elect of God. And so we take the world out, cosmos out, and we put the word elect in, in our minds. No, the word is world. The word is not elect. Is it true that God only saves the elect? Yes, that's good theology, but that's bad exegesis of the text. To substitute the word elect for the word world. The word world is there for a reason. And then there's the Arminian interpretation. God so loved the world, meaning every, each and every individual who's ever lived or who will ever live on the face of the earth, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's bad exegesis too. It's bad theology and bad exegesis. The Calvinist era is good theology, bad exegesis. Now, what does the word world mean in John's writings? It means the world marshaled together. That is, people, humankind, marshaled together in rebellion against God. The text is about the quality of the love of God. Not the quantity distributed to everyone that's out there. But that God loved a sin-sick, fallen, rebellious mankind so much that he sent his own son to die for that sin-sick world. That's the kindness. That's the grace. That's the mercy of God extended to enemies. And we're all enemies of God because of the fall. The same thing here in the text. I know there's a variant in terms of the Greek manuscripts that lie behind this. But at the same time, we need to recognize here, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared to man, 
he appeared to mankind. When this happened, he saved us. There you have the believers. There you have the church. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There is a great mouthful in what I just read of theology. And what is Paul doing? It's what He'll be making a point. It's an important point, but it might seem to us some, a little bit mundane. For instance, in Philippians chapter 2, what does he say? He says, Have the mind in you which is in Christ Jesus. That is, be humble towards one another. That's what he's calling us to do. To be humble with each other. And the ground for it, the humility and the exaltation of Jesus Christ and that great Christ Him. It is full of this theology of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that is foundational and the application of it to us is be humble with each other. Be like Jesus. The same thing here. Be kind. Be kind to those that are in the world around you. Be like God who was kind towards you, and how kind was he towards you? You could not save yourself. The Lord Jesus Christ came. He died in your place. You are justified by God by grace and not by works. It's by grace alone. You have this great statement of the doctrine of justification and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf as the ground for this exhortation. Be kind to your neighbors. Be kind to your neighbors. Why? Because God has been kind to you. To your neighbors too. Even though he has not decreed maybe their salvation if they are reprobate. It flows from the heart of God. How are we to live before those in the world around us? Be kind. How are we to live before the world around us? Be obedient to those who are in authority over us. Be humble. Be gentle. And let me tell you something. The world takes note. Because the world is not humble. The world is not gentle. The world is not The world does not respect authority. And you shine as a light. This is how we're to live before the world. And this is the ground. Look at God's kindness to you. You are justified by grace through faith, not by your works. There's no place for pride. Be kind. Be gentle. Be respectful. Honor those that are in authority over you. And then he ends by repeating this statement in essence or or coming to a conclusion in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. And I want to insist on these things to those who have believed in in God that they may be, be careful. Here's the exhortation. This is what comes to you. Devote yourself to good work. 
do what's right. And he's explained what those look like. Kindness, gentleness. That's how you live in front of the world. Devote yourself to good works. Not that people will pat you on the back and say, look at how good they are. Look at the works that they accomplished. But for the sake of your God who is kind towards the world. Devote yourself to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people living the Christian life in this way as a believer and in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. Even though we confess after hearing it that oftentimes we have not been respectful of lawful authorities that you have put in place. That we have demonized those that are around us and exalted ourselves by doing so. That sometimes we are impatient and harsh rather than kind and forbearing. But then, Father, we look at how you are and what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. That it's all of grace. Lord, work these good works in us and through us that the light of the gospel may shine bright in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.